Welcome to the Therapy Evolved Podcast, brought to you by Paragon Wellness. Each episode, we discuss the modern behaviors that trigger positive emotional states by tapping into the body and brain's evolved needs, which are so often neglected in modern life. Join us as we talk with experts in a relevant field, as well as everyday people who've experienced better mastery over themselves and their lifestyles through applying the principles of behavior we espouse. And if you'd like to know more, please join us at paragon-counseling.com or facebook.com slash paragonwellness. Thanks again for joining us. Terry, thanks for joining us today. We are super excited to have you on the Therapy of All podcast. Um, and for our listeners, Terry is a psychiatric nurse at New Orleans Criminal Court Intervention Services with the Drug Court Program. And part of his role is he helps clients suffering from addiction um, with medication-assisted treatment to sort of use pharmaceuticals to help them uh, come down off of withdrawal symptoms, post-acute withdrawals, and sort of difficulty beating cravings. So the addiction piece may come into play, but really I, re- I want to leverage Terry's uh, expertise today to talk to the effect of human performance and how you can understand your body chemistry and operate more efficiently as a human being from that. So Terry, thank you so much for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yes, and it's a pleasure to be here, Ken. Thank you. Uh, I became a nurse in 1990. It was more like a uh, second or third profession for me. I've done a few things uh, before that. Uh, I have a degree in psychology from Loyola University, class of 1976, because psychology has always been an interest of mine. Uh, As a kid, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to know how things worked. That includes how the body works, how a car works, how a battery works, how the mind works. And I come from a background where there, uh, in my extended family, there were a couple people, uh, a couple relatives, who did have serious mental illnesses. Sure. And uh, another one, at least one that I can remember, had a um, uh, serious problem with alcoholism. Uh, When I became a nurse, I knew exactly that I wanted to go into the psychiatric field of nursing. Uh, which is very unusual in nursing because you you tell most nurses that next semester is going to be your psychiatric training and nobody's excited about it. Sure. I was thrilled. I was thrilled to death. I couldn't wait for it. And uh, I started off my first three years of nursing as an operating room nurse because I had done that as a student and just couldn't wait to break in to the mental health field And that finally happened after two and a half or three years of being in the operating room. I started out working with adolescents and children, mind you, who have substance abuse problems. Sure. Went from there to uh, just uh, straight mental health nursing at Charity Hospital. And then got back in the mid-90s to um, substance abuse nursing for five or six years. And I've pretty much done it ever since then. You see some really difficult situations in that. It was an eye-opener, and I think, uh, you know, I credit being at Charity Hospital for those years with uh, 
probably knowing 50 to 60 percent of what I know now. Sure, that gauntlet of rough experience. Yes. <laughs> what, I got out, what I got out of your story is sort of this combination of natural curiosity, but also like high stakes incentives to learn. You know, your own family suffering with this to some degree. Absolutely. Um, and to me, that combination of not only ability and desire to learn, but that sort of that hungry fire in your butt, as they say, to, to, get up, to get up and get after it and get moving. To get after it and to get moving and to do something about it. Sure. As a child, when you see this in your family, uh, whether it be your immediate family, your extended family, or friends in the neighborhood, in the 50s and 60s, what could you do? What could psychiatrists do? What could therapists do? There wasn't very much. Yeah. They did what they could. And as a child, I cannot tell you the impression that left on me and how much I wanted to help, but how very little I could because I didn't understand. I'd hear about nervous breakdowns, uh, you know, the big NBD, as, as one of the authors used to, used to put it, nervous breakdowns. Uh, and I'd hear about alcoholism, but why, why couldn't he just quit? Sure. What, what was the problem? What caused the nervous break? What was a nervous breakdown? Yeah. What, what was it? What, what did those terms mean? And even, I saw the effects, but I had yeah. no idea what they meant. Well, and even today, in 2016 and 2016, you know, our medical and scientific professionals know, but the, um, the majority of people may not. That's correct. So I guess that, that brings me to this question that's sort of driving now. If you are having a mouthpiece and a voice to reach people that don't have a medical or scientific background, what would you want them to understand about how nervous breakdowns, mental health issues, and addiction, what would you have them understand about these ideas? Well, I think the first thing, Ken, is that people need to understand that they're out there, that, quote, nervous breakdowns still happen. Uh, that people do get addicted. The best of us get addicted. The best of us have mental problems. Sure. You may not see them. And it's you, a spectrum, right? Like someone can have it, but if they're functioning and you don't know, for every one person that identifies, you might have 19 more just under the surface, just about there. That's right. That's right. And if you took a poll in, in any workplace, uh, depending on how honest the employees might be, if you took a poll to see how many people are actually on psychotropic medications, if you took a poll to see just how many people have suffered with some degree of addiction or substance use, I think the vast majority of the population might be surprised as hell sure, it's a at, lot at what's going on. And it's interesting, right, because by my trade, I deal with the behavioral, and you deal with the combination of the behavioral and the medical and, mm -hmm. uh, and the chemical. Mm -hmm. So there's often been this sort of like bickering back and forth about how much pharmaceutical, how much behavioral is the right combination. And it's, you know, it's really the sort of, you have this pushback against the pharmaceutical industry, and then you also have this pushback against the sort of hippie, woo-woo, not valid approaches that sometimes come from good-meaning professional, well-meaning professionals. So what, is, what are your thoughts on like this balance between psychotropic intervention but also behavioral implementation? 
We have a term that we used to use when I was a young psychiatric nurse called the worried well, a section of the population that we called the worried well. But by the worried well, most of us meant um, somebody who uh, may have a little problem with depression or anxiety, but, but nothing to be overly concerned about. But if they had money, if they were people of means, they were seeing psychiatrists once or twice a week sure. for psychoanalysis. They were on um, uh, the newer medications like the SSRIs. Yeah. If, if they felt they needed to be hospitalized, nobody would fight them about it, except they were in the best possible hospitals in the United States. Sure. Now, counter that with somebody who is severely mentally ill. And I can only speak from my experiences as to what I've seen. Which were quite a few, you know. Which were quite a few. And, and in the mid-90s, I can give you an example. In the mid-90s, there were a group of five or six severely mentally ill young adults that I, I had the absolute pleasure of working with. All of them with diagnoses of schizophrenia, uh, uh, mostly paranoid schizophrenia horrible delusions, and co-occurring substance abuse. Sure. The substance abuse issues were fairly easy to get under control because the program they were in was an abstinence-only program, uh, very 12-step uh, oriented. Um, these guys, I think it was all guys and, and, and one gal, came to the clinic several times a week for process groups. Uh, and I was one of the leader of the process groups. They were in and out of hospitals, mental hospitals, um, taking um, what we call the heavy-duty drugs, sure. the, you know, Haldol, uh, Thorazine, the, the old line, antipsychotic drugs. One doctor came in, and uh, she was new to the clinic, and decided, you know, these guys have suffered enough. Let's try uh, a medication called Clozaril. Uh, and for those who are not familiar with it, Clozaril is an antipsychotic. It's not used very much, although it's very effective. It's not used very much because it has a bad side effect profile. Lots of paperwork for the nurse, lots of blood draws, sure. um, lo lots of labs. And if you're dealing with a large volume of clientele, it's that seemingly small problem can completely alter the course of who uses it. It can, and it's very time-consuming. The point of the story is that these guys cleared up on Clozarill within a matter of weeks. It was an absolute pleasure working with them. There were no more delusions. There were no more hallucinations. And not only that, they were able to talk about their past experiences. They were able to explain to me, as a clinician, what it was like to have gone through episodes of delusions, hallucinations, uh, schizophrenic episodes. Where do you draw the line? Where's the balance? You know, when is too much when is medicine too much and, and, and when is it not enough? I think I've indicated that I've that I've seen both ends of the spectrum. Sure, you know the worried well and the, the worried well and the severe the SMI severely mentally ill. And, and and I think a lot of that has to do with um, with the mindset of the psychiatrist and and all of the clinicians. 
Uh, clinicians, uh, psychiatrists depend on clinicians like social workers and therapists such as yourself and nurses such as myself to get a complete picture of what's going on. Sure. Absolutely yeah. takes a village. Right, right. When there's the capability to act and the ability to um, state an intention and execute, then maybe that person might be better served trying behaviors before pharmaceuticals. And if that fails, then pharmaceuticals and behaviors. Whereas someone isn't in a place to uh, formulate a plan, implement it, that person might benefit from pharmaceuticals first. Yes, you're, a you're absolutely correct. I'm not sure that's what I said, but you're absolutely correct. Well, I guess correct. what I'm trying to think of the middle spectrum between the most extreme and the least extreme. Right. Right. I was right. like, what's the difference? Well, the worried well, they seem to be able to act, but choose the extreme. That's right. You know? Whereas the SMI don't have much of a choice. Right. You know, you have to do something with them. And then how you dial that in depends on the culture and the medical team that's working with them. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And I was fortunate, by the way, to have worked for the state of Louisiana during most of my time. So I don't hear that fortunate and state of Louisiana work in the same sentence. Let me often. explain it. Let me explain it to you. <laughs> Uh, you know, several things, uh, uh, several things were good about working for the state of Louisiana, but it helped the patients. Uh, it helped the indigent patients, is yeah. what I mean by being fortunate enough to do that. Because some of these medicines, as you know, are extremely expensive. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, I know one that we use now here at this clinic a lot is $1,000 a dose. Is that the Vivitrol? The Vivitrol, yeah. right. So it went down. Last I heard it was 1500 Yeah. yeah. So. How about that for a jump? Oh, yeah. You know. um, and then, of course, you know, if, if you do want to run the gamut between, you know, the, the full spectrum, there are those mentally ill people who do very well without medication and can do very well with counseling, therapy, um, changing their daily habits. Sure. You know, learning the art of mindfulness, uh, exercise, something as simple as exercise. Oh, it's huge. You know, and it's so, and I think we've, you know, one gripe I've had about the idea is if you can't bottle it up, people just aren't as interested in it. Right, right. I mean, I think our culture has come to that. Sure. But it's hard to blame any one person as if that was a productive behavior anyway, but it's like, is the psychiatrist going to convince his 5,000 clients to suddenly change their lifestyle in the 10 minutes they meet per three yes. months? Yes, Is the... Um, you know, the therapist in a position to know this person's medication profile if they've been around. Is the client in a position when they've got endless pressures on the back and front ends? Can you really change your lifestyle with the work that goes into that rebuilding process when you've got three kids, two jobs, and medical concerns and never that's any right. pressure? That's right. So, and that's another reason I think the team approach to mental health and substance abuse is the absolute best. Sure. You know, if you depend on a psychiatrist alone, you'll only get so much. If you depend on a therapist alone, you'll only get so much of the puzzle. Yeah. If you depend on a nurse alone, you'll only get so much. But with the talents the, of the multidisciplinary team at work, working on the same problem but coming at it from maybe different angles, yeah. you get the best results. I think back to the first thing you said when you talked about your desire to understand what from cars to people to bodies to minds. The mind is extremely complicated. It's way too much for one, one person's career path to truly know how it fully works. Absolutely. You know, something that complicated 
you would need a team of specialists to know how to operate and execute and you know and advise and process with that. Mm-hmm. So. I want to switch gears a little bit. I, sure. I think you've given people a great perspective as far as like how do professionals see them as clients when they walk in the door. And it depends on the culture. It depends on the quality of your team. Um, and it depends on the, the sort of leader of, you know, a therapist maybe, let's hit the behaviors more, a psychiatrist maybe, let's try meds and then behaviors. So how you're treated as a client when you walk in is generally with the idea of we want to help, but how that works is going to be different based on the culture. You know? But as a professional, as you observe your profession and allied professions around it, the mental health world in general, what have you seen done well, and what have you seen that could have been done better? That's a good question. What I've seen done well are clinicians who meet the patient where the patient is. No preconceived notions. Uh, Before I worked in substance abuse, exclusively in substance Mm -hmm. abuse, I'd meet patients in my nursing practice who would come in with mental health problems. Uh, Sometimes they were on time, most of the time they were on time, sometimes they weren't. That's infuriating to a lot of people, a lot of practitioners, because we're all stretched to the limit. Sure. We have 15 minutes to a half an hour, if we're lucky we have an hour to spend with each patient. And there's no break time. There's no wiggle room in our schedule. If somebody's late, maybe I ought to speak for myself. Huh? If somebody's <laughs> late, I tend to get very, very irritated. Sure. Until it came to me one day that there might be a reason why this person's late. Nine times out of ten, there was a completely valid reason why the patient was late. And I guess what I'm hearing of that is like, it falls upon us to implement, implement healthy thinking and behavior strategies as well, especially if we're going to be working with a group that needs to do so And as if well. we want to impart that kind of thinking to our patients, you're exactly right. Yeah. We have to get to the point where we can think that way ourselves. Okay. Um, what has, so, you know, changing the way of thinking that way. And, and I learned this from other practitioners, by the way. I, I, I didn't learn it all by myself. I learned it from other practitioners, especially a psychiatrist who will remain nameless, but who's still practicing in New Orleans and a very good psychiatrist. Um, meet the patient where he is, where she is, and take it from there. Conversely, the things that I've seen that do not work well is a cookie-cutter approach to treat inpatients. Uh, Mrs. Smith comes in and she's complaining of depression. All right, let's start you on an SSRI. Here's your doggy bag, get out. That's right, and and I'll see you next week. Uh, Next week, Mrs. Smith comes in and, doctor, um, that just didn't help me too much. Uh, I'm still feeling this way, I'm still feeling that way. Well, you know, Mrs. Smith, there are five or six other SSRIs that I can give. Let, let, let's go to SSRI, SSRI B or C. Those are rare instances, but trust me, 
Trust me. I've seen it happen. Well, we do our best in every field. Every one of our fields has its own ethics and licensing board, which makes certain, as best as they can, that we do good work, we show compassion, we show caring. But it shames me to say, but unfortunately, some people slip through. Some unethical or disinterested people just looking for a paycheck jump to the right hoops, say the right things, perform well enough, get the credentials, and get out and go do damage. Right. You know? Right. Terry, uh, thank you so much, man. We're running up on time here, and I know you got a lot to do, and very little wiggle room, as you just yeah. said. Yeah. So what would you want listeners to take away from everything we've talked about, or the mental health field in general? Well, you know, basically, I'd like people to understand, I'd, I'd like people to take away, I know we haven't had much time to discuss everything, but um, especially if you're not a practitioner uh, in, in the mental health field, and I don't, I don't know exactly what your audience is comprised of. It's a range from it, it, professionals. It, it runs the gamut. Yeah, to people just looking to learn these principles to enhance their lives. Yeah. Um, we all need to understand that mental health or mental illness is prevalent. Uh, we all need to work on taking the stigma out of it. And when you say stigma, um, how would you define that to people that don't quite know what that is? Uh, we have to take the shame sure. away from people who are, or who are mentally ill. Sure. Uh, and I'm using mentally ill in, in the broadest term possible. Sure. It's okay to be depressed and admit it. It's okay to... It's all right to be anxious yeah. and admit it. Uh, Thomas Merton, who was one of my, my favorite authors, uh, was not very well received. He, he was a Roman Catholic, okay. uh, a Trappist monk, and, and in some schools not very well received by the Catholic Church. But I read a quote by him many years ago, probably back in the 60s or 70s, that blew me away and does to this day. Thomas Merton said that anxiety is inevitable in the world in which we live. Of course. God does not ask us not to be anxious, but to trust in him no matter how we feel. And I think for a, a shame-based person with anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, I think that would make a world of difference for them to process a statement like that. Sure. I am not abandoned by my, how, my higher power. He doesn't expect me not to be such and such. Or he just wants me to trust in him no matter what. Instead of, because I have depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, that I've suddenly failed, you know, a lot of people think it's that stigma of, if I have this, I'm a failure. That's right. I Where, did something wrong. Whereas, it's a, this is irrelevant to, pa to pass or fail or succeed or fail. It's your actions and your perspective that follows that determines it. That's right. Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much Thank for joining us. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. It's our calling to provide information and inspiration to help people achieve happiness, self-mastery, and better lifestyles in any way we can. But I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that though I am a licensed professional counselor, these podcasts are not sufficient to count as clinical intervention nor advice. Please contact a local professional if you find yourself experiencing distress that does not improve with a good and simple routine. And finally, we're striving to improve in all that we do. 
all the time. And as such, we'd love your feedback. If you want to connect with us further, please do so at paragoncounselor at gmail.com or facebook.com slash paragonwellness. Thank you.